left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Anonymity is a privacy mechanism, all right? When you create out-of-state entities, you have to have a personal agent of service. Their sole job is to say, hey, guess what? Congratulations. You just got served. Here's your lawsuit service papers. Go get a lawyer and get your butt in the court. At that point, you know, your anonymity is out the door. The only way it works is when a judge says, hey, here's an asset disclosure list. Tell me what you own. You either lie under oath and don't disclose your assets and commit perjury and go to jail, or you disclose your assets. At that point, anonymity is out the door. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Ryan Murdoch from Open Door Capital, and you are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm pleased today to have Brian Bradley with us. He's the Senior Managing Partner at Bradley Legal Corp and is a leading educator and nationally recognized asset protection attorney for high-risk professionals, business owners, real estate investors, and ultra-high net worth families. Brian, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, and it's going to be an important topic you know, I'm not going to try to, you know, be too legally dense and I'm going to try to keep the topic fun. I'm not anyone's attorney or legal guru here. We're just going to be talking in generalities. And I think that we're going to take a, get a lot to learn from this episode. And I just hope that the concepts we talk about help you and your listeners understand, you know, this weird word asset protection and like asset protection trust and how we protect our assets and keep them from lawsuits and danger. And I love this area of law because I like investing myself. You know, I like investing more passively through lending money and investing in underperforming notes, but still, you know, like I like to practice what I preach. That's great. And I'm looking forward to this because this is always something that kind of goes on the back burner, right? It's, it's something important, but it's not always given the importance that it actually needs. So the way we usually like to start out is if you can just kind of tell us your journey, how you got to be where you are, how you got to be an, an asset protection attorney. And like you mentioned a little bit about your passive investing, you can include that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I got into practicing law. I was an injured college athlete and I just needed to find another outlet for my competitiveness. And I you know, was really good with logic and philosophy and words. And so I ended up, you know, my mom was like, you should really consider, you know, going to law school. So I decided to go to law school. You know, I was working as a prosecutor for a little bit and the economy tanked and then had to move into civil practice because there was no more, you know, jobs and no money from the states in 08, 09 and 010, you know, when the economy tanked in those times. So being the new young guy, I was the first one let go. And then I just ended up doing tons of trial work, you know, for about three years doing trial work for free and just knocking on other state agencies doors saying like, hey, you have all these cases, you need someone to represent you, I'll do it for free, just cover the cost. And so just built up an insane amount of trial experience and built up a really good reputation. 
And then I just realized so many people were getting sued and just completely cleaned out by just completely bogus, most of the time lawsuits or just completely radical, you know, judgments that were just gross in the amount. And just, you know, you have people losing their entire retirement legacies. And I thought to myself, like, there has to be a better way to help these people before all of this happened. And so I got an asset protection, not from like a lot of people from the estate planning side, but from actual the litigation and trial side of the law. Like I said, I'm having clients being sued and their lives is being completely turned upside down from this out of control legal system and sue happy nirvana that we live in. And so what I did was I reached out to a bunch of the top, you know, asset protection firms in the nation at the time. I was like, hey, let's try to find a way to work together. And as we started building our practices up together, I just realized this is what I wanted to commit my practice towards 100%. And I just shifted myself from doing now just a little bit of trial work and I kind of cherry pick the trials I want to do to just 100% asset protection and focus on high-end asset protection for more high net worth and ultra high net worth families with a lot of risk or, you know, like your doctor investing in real estate as well. So you have a high risk profession on top of it and just trying to make sure you keep what you got. Yeah, that's awesome. And my first question is that like you mentioned high risk professionals. What is a high risk professional? Yeah. So it's not, you know, like you're working, you know, Walmart, or something like that, because everybody has negligence of their normal day life, you know, right? You know, like driving your car, walking down the street, you know, so you're going to have just like general negligence of your life. Now, if you're a W-2 employee, a lot of the time you're going to have coverage as long as you stay within the scope of your employment. So if you're just a W-2 employee, generally there's going to be some sort of indemnification and insurance coverage on, you know, you messing up on the job and someone getting hurt. Now what happens if you're a business owner? So generally high risk professions, you're a business owner, you're a doctor, you're, you know, a CPA, a lawyer, entrepreneur. The risk comes on to you and certain professions are just going to be more risks than others. And even within the scope of those employments, like some doctors really don't have much medical malpractice risk. Some of them have an insane amount like OBGYNs and surgeons. So even within the realm of what your profession is, there's going to be different layers of risk and amount of risk. And so what we're really doing when we're practicing asset protection is I'm doing a risk profile of your entire life, not just I own this piece of real estate in Tennessee. It's, but what's your day job? What's your wife's day job? Do you own a business? What assets are you investing in? What type of class are you investing in? Are you active? Are you passive? And then we're trying to create an entire asset protection plan to protect the whole scope of your life holistically. And so think of it like a pie chart, okay? And there's generally three areas, the things that I know, the things that I don't know, and the things that I don't know that I don't know. If I know something, I don't need to ask you about it. If I don't know something, but I know, you know, hey, Jim, you know this answer, I'm gonna ask you that question and I'll get the answer from it. Most people run and operate their lives and own things in the latter part, the I don't know what I don't know portion of it. And that's where all the really risk comes from. And so the idea is we need to shrink that portion of the pie as much as possible, but also protect ourselves from that as much as possible. Where you fall within that landscape of the protection needed really just depends on your profile. Maybe you're just starting out. Cool. We'll just start base layer LLCs and insurance. As you scale and layer and grow, your asset protection plan needs to scale and layer and grow with you. Maybe add a second layer management company. Maybe then add that third layer asset protection trust. You just have to realize where your start is not going to be where you finish and you need to have your protection plan grow with you. Okay. So you mentioned people getting wiped out by lawsuits. And before we get into asset protection, because I want to dig deep into that, can you talk about what are these lawsuits? What are people getting sued for? What are the exposures to everyday people. And I know we talked a little bit about the high-risk professionals getting sued for what they're doing at work, but all the other stuff. I imagine there's auto accidents and other things, but what are the common things that we're protecting against? That's the common. I just had two clients this week and one last week. For some reason, it was like people hitting people with cars week, you know, the last seven days, but not in a good way. I mean, it was literally like, hey, I lent my car to my grandpa who then was not insured and then hit a motorcycle driver with my car you know, like things like that, you know, or you go out on date night, you have one glass of wine or one beer, you know, and you're coming home and some, you know, person decides to walk in front of your car. Even if you, it's not your fault that you hit them, what's going to happen? You're going to get sued big time. And because you had alcohol in your system, you may not have even been drunk. You're not, maybe you're not getting a DUI, but you had 
alcohol in your system. And yeah, I have insurance and insurance coverage. You think they're going to cover you now because you hit someone with alcohol in your body? No, you are claimed intentionally wrong and you had you know alcohol in your system. So your insurance is going to walk away from you. You know, it's just a general basic negligence of life. You're renting a property out to somebody. I have a client who's a doctor in California and he's renting a Jersey property out. Didn't know he was in, renting out to a gangbanger. You know, gang member had a party, fight broke out, everybody's drunk, guns got pulled, someone got shot and killed. Who's getting sued? The doctor for wrongful death. Mold issues in properties. I mean, there's just so many ways life can go sideways on you and you can be a perfect angel, you know, and say like, well, I'm a great landlord. I'm a great human being. I don't want, you know, taking straight puppy dogs and cats. You can be the best person in the world. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have like negligent incidents happen in your life. Right. So how do I protect myself? Wait, you talk about an asset protection plan. Who needs it and what is it? Yeah. So I think like a great way to even like start with this, even like, what is this word? Like what is asset protection? You know, and it's not traditional estate planning. It's modern estate planning. And what we're doing is simply placing a legal barrier between your assets and your potential creditor, meaning the person suing you trying to take your money before it's needed. That's the key word, before it's needed. If something happens afterwards and you come to me after the fact, it's too late. You know, it's like trying to go get insurance after you hit somebody with your car or after your house burns down. You're just not going to get it. And that's it. So it's just a barrier like a safe for your gold or your guns or valuables. Anything of value you want to put behind the legal barriers and out of your personal name so that it's not easily attached with a lien or reach. And so just think of like, I love the Tony Robbins saying, success leaves clues. The rich don't own things in their personal name, their businesses and their trust do. They just get the beneficial use and enjoyment out of them while they're, you know, and separating out that legal liability. And so the type of tools that we have, they vary, right? The main three that we generally use are, you know, the base layer LLC, so limited liability companies with insurance, and then limited partnerships, and then asset protection trust. And the way to think about it is to think about winter. Okay. Like I come from cold weather. I grew up in Lake Tahoe, tons of snow there. I lived in Michigan, like freezing, frozen tundra. I'm in Oregon right now where it's like constantly damp and cold. What we do is we learn how to dress in layers. That first entry layer is your base layer. It sits on your skin. This is an LLC and insurance. This is when you're just starting out investing and you have, you know, zero to three units or properties, you know, and your net worth is probably generally around $250,000 or less. And then as you grow and add more assets and you hit around that four unit mark or you're, you know, you're investing in multiple states or you have multiple syndication deals and you have around $500,000 to $700,000 net, you know, you own your personal home with some good amount of equity in there, you know, you have personal stock accounts, you want a mid layer, which is usually a little bit thicker. You know, it's generally going to be made out of Moreno wool or a Carnegie for you ladies. This is a management company. And we use limited partnerships for this mid-layer, which if we have time, I can break down why later on. And then when you hit around that 1 million net worth mark, you want an outer shell waterproof layer. This keeps you nice and dry and warm when the weather's really bad. You know, this is your doomsday lawsuit protection layer. This is your asset protection trust. And specifically, I like to use bridge trust because you're combining an offshore and onshore component all in one nice one. But while you're shopping around, looking for an asset protection plan, I really want you to you know, remember and think of this acronym, ECCC, Effectiveness, Control, Cost, and Compliance. So as a client, when you call me, I know that you want these four things. One, you want an effective plan. Two, you want to control your plan, meaning like you want to be able to manage your assets. Three, you want a reasonable and sustainable cost. If it's just too much for you to afford, you're just not going to do anything. You're going to keep everything in your own personal name. And then four, you want a plan that's easy to maintain compliance on with the IRS. If it's too expensive for you to pay your CPA every year to do it or it's eating in the cost, or your CPA is just too confused on how to like maintain the tax filings on this, after two years, you're just going to give up on it and it's not going to work anymore. And so while you're shopping around, just really think about effectiveness, control, cost, and compliance. That's great. Now, you talked about LLCs, LPs, and asset protection trusts. Can we dig in a little bit deeper for those? I mean, I know that for passive investors, we're all LPs in certain deals, and a lot of us are, you know, have our own LLCs. But can you talk about what each one of those are and, and what their purpose would be? Yeah. So, you know, LLCs, I think we all know what LLCs are, you know. So, you know, that's the 
first layer, asset protection 101, the entry-level base layer, you know, the LLC is generally going to be holding risky assets like active real estate investments. I generally wouldn't be if you're investing on a passive level. I wouldn't be putting, you know, passive syndication shares into an LLC because that's what I would use a management company for. If you're not ready for a management company, then yeah, you can put them into an LLC. That's fine because it's just where you're at currently in the stage of your life. But generally, I would be using a limited partnership as a management company and putting those passive investments directly into that management company and then using LLCs for risky assets like rental properties, yachts, airplanes, you know, those type of assets. What I do want to mention though is just the importance of why you layer up is, you know, there's three big misconceptions and downfalls of LLCs. You know, one, they tell you straight up in the name, like they don't hide the fact, like first word, first letter, limited. You know, like they're limited. They're not a silver bullet, you know, like, you know, was it Werewolf Slayer, I guess, is what a silver bullet kills. You know, like they're very limited in what they do. And there's lots of ways to pierce the corporate veil in every state now. And so they're disregarded entities, you know, one. And so what being disregarded means is it's great for taxes, all right? It's really bad for asset protection because what being disregarded means is though those, you know, for tax purposes, it passes directly through to you. So does that liability. It passes directly through to you as well. And so what you really want is for those disregarded LLCs to not be managed and owned by you, but to be disconnected to a management company. Okay, because then those K1s will flow directly into that management company. But then you're getting the protection from the management company while separating out the risky assets. So now you're still going to have one tax filing. I can have 50 LLCs all disregarded, owned and managed by my management company, but I don't have to file 50 different K1s. I'm only filing one K1 at the end of the day with one page attachment called a 1065. And so it really cleans up your life a lot better to manage all of your different assets. Now, the second big problem here with LLCs is just, it's called like charging order chasing. You know, like, where do we set these things up in? Like, what state are we going to go? And you generally hear people running off to like Wyoming, Delaware, Texas, and Nevada. And really, it just comes down to an issue of what are you holding and where are you holding it at? And attorneys and CPAs convolute this, especially if they don't specifically work in the world exclusively of asset protection, because CPAs only care about what? Mitigating your taxes, right? Like they really don't work in the realm of liability and law, and they should not be giving you legal advice because that's not their job. Then they're practicing law without a license. Most lawyers aren't taught asset protection. It's not something we're taught in law school. It's not on our bar exams. And there's not really that much continuing legal education coursework out there. So unless you're working with a specialist, they're not going to really know all the finite detail that a specialist would know in that area of law. And so the problem when you're chasing state jurisdictions, like saying, let's put everything in a Wyoming LLC is unless you have a jurisdictional connection to that state, you know, like I live in Wyoming or my asset is in Wyoming you're really not going to be able to buy another state's more beneficial laws and take them to California if you're a California resident owning California assets. So when you're getting sued in California, it's going to be California law that applies. You know, California, you know, injury law, whatever damage laws, whatever that is the issue that you're getting sued in, it's going to be that state's laws that apply. You can't just say, well, I'm going to stick everything in Wyoming and now force California to bring Wyoming law to California. A judge is just going to laugh you out of court. It doesn't work that way. And so that's one of the really big misconceptions when it comes to investing is we use Wyoming LLCs when we're creating businesses. Like, hey, Jim, let's go create a business and sell widgets. Cool. We can create a Wyoming LLC for our widget selling company. That's an actual business. Most of the time we're using LLCs as holding companies. There's no business that's going on. And so that's just an extension of you. All right. So that's the problem when we're using other states out of court LLCs for assets that aren't in those states. There's no jurisdictional connection. And then the other third big one is just like everyone's falling in love with this word anonymity, but they don't really understand what anonymity even means. And I like for some reason they're being sold on this idea that you can create an anonymous Wyoming LLC and like ghost a lawsuit and you just don't exist. That's not what anonymity means. Anonymity is a privacy mechanism. All right. When you create out-of-state entities, you have to have a personal agent of service. Their sole job is to say, hey, guess what? Congratulations. You just got served. Here's your lawsuit service papers. Go get a lawyer and get your butt in the court. At that point, you know, your anonymity is out the door. The only way it works is when a judge says, hey, here's an asset disclosure list. Tell me what you own. You either lie under oath and don't disclose your assets and commit perjury and go to jail or you disclose your assets. At that point, anonymity is out the door. Anonymity works as a privacy mechanism so people can't harass you and say, Jim, you're a horrible landlord. I'm going to go egg your house because now I know where you live. 
It's not a, I'm going to ghost a lawsuit privacy mechanism. That's not how our legal system works. Hey, Leftfielders, this is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. So there seems to be a lot of misconceptions then about LLCs and how they operate, right? So I'm still not fully understanding what the management company, the LP, I assume. So all the LLCs report up to this management company. What kind of structure does that management company have? How does that work? Does that management company then file its own tax return that issues a K-1 to me personally? Can you talk just about how that how that works? Yeah, so that's exactly what happens. So, you know, limited partnerships, they're like LLCs. And so they also have some charging order protection. And I like them better because they have a very distinct delineation between the managing partner called the general partner and the minority partner who does not. So think of it like a split personality, all right? We like having both a GP and an LP interest, and we use the asset management like limited partnerships as the starting point for clients at that holding company level. You know, it's better than going to the next stage of like a Wyoming LLC as the management company because there's things you just cannot do with an LLC that you statutorily can do with limited partnerships. And so some of these benefits are, you know, exclusively you have charge and order protection in Arizona. Like I like to use Arizona limited partnerships because it's the only remedy for creditors, you know, of a partnership is their charging order protection exclusively. That's it. And then you have an actual statutory distinction between the GP and the LP side by statute. You know, so this is better than LLCs because LLCs can only do this by an operating agreement. Then that court has to interpret that operating agreement. So you're basically leaving it up for a judge to decide if he's going to agree on what your operating agreement says or not. So you're just like, I don't know from like 50-50 chance. What, you know, did he like his breakfast today? I don't know. And then we have ARS section 29-333, which is kind of where the magic comes into play. This specifically allows for a limited partnership to make what's called a unilateral withdrawal and demand from all the assets in the in the limited partnership from the trust. So during a doomsday lawsuit, the trust can demand all the assets that it owns in that limited partnership and then disconnect from that management company by statute. And you can't do this at all with LLCs without exposing you to a claim of fraudulent transfers. So that's already like a big list of like really good advantages of why LLPs at that management company layer are better. Another one is Limited partners are perpetual, whereas, you know, other states, they have an annual reporting and filing fees that you have to file every year for the LLCs. And then limited partnerships, by nature, they're completely private by statute. So you already are also getting built in privacy, which is what you want, you know, some privacy. But remember, you, privacy doesn't mean ghosting lawsuits. It just means, you know, privacy from harassment. And then for tax filing purposes, your limited partnership cannot be a disregarded entity. But LLCs with just one member are automatically considered a disregarded entity. And that's not good for liability issues and with lawsuits. And so when you're creating all these LLCs underneath that limited partnership, they're all going to be disregarded and flow up into that management company. So all those tax filings that need to get done, they're going to be included in your limited partnerships tax filing with a one-page attachment called a 1065. So you're only filing one tax return through that limited partnership versus however many LLCs that you have. So currently I have several LLCs and they're all passed through entities. So I still only file one tax return under my name. So this would change where I file a tax return with my limited partnership and then it issues me a K-1 personally for my own tax return? Correct. Correct. And then what you're doing is adding a more layer, another layer of protection. Okay. Who's the GP and who's the LP on the limited partnership structure? Because again, we're familiar with syndications where we're always the LPs and then the management company or they're the GPs. Is it the same? So if I have my own limited partnership, who's limited partner, who's general partner? So if it's just, if your protection plan stops there and that's it, you don't have an asset protection trust, you're both. 
is you're the managing member and you're the limited partnership. So you're managing it and owning it. Ideally, what you eventually want is to add that third layer, the asset protection trust, to where you're just on the GP side, you're just a managing member, and then your asset protection trust owns that limited partnership. And then you're the beneficiary and creator of your trust. And that's where the magic really starts into play of how you combine and use the limited partnership with the asset protection trust. Okay. I want to talk about the asset protection trust next, but you know, we've talked to other attorneys and this is the first time I'm hearing about this type of structure. So that's great. It's, it's just different. So we were talking to someone about series LLCs and how you use a series and everything reports up to that. And that would be kind of taking the place of your LP structure. So can you tell me what you think of that? Yeah, here's the problem with series LLCs is not every state recognizes them. So, you know, I only use them if two criteria are met. And even then, I really don't like to use them. One, you live in a state that has some sort of series LLC statute and regulations, and the asset you own does as well. Because let's say you live in California or like the majority of every state I would say a substantial majority of every state in the country that doesn't recognize the series LLC structure, like Florida doesn't even recognize them. And you get sued in that state. A judge is going to say, well, that's great. Guess what? We don't recognize them here. So your series LLC, we're going to consider as one LLC. So that's the big, like the big downfall is depending on what state you live in and what state the asset is in, you're not going to get the benefit that you think you just paid for because not every state recognizes them and there's no case law on them. So as a trial lawyer, if I have to go in and argue a case and say like, well, your honor, there's no trial, there's no case law for me to cite on this. I would not want to walk in and make that argument and just be the guinea pig for my client because then most likely I'm going to be getting sued. So the lack of case law and the lack of fact that most states don't recognize the series structure and the child series, it's just not just ineffective. I think is bad planning. It's, it's scary and I'm not going to risk that for a client. And the other problem is states still will require you like California to pay the franchise tax on each child series that you create. So though you have a parent series at the top, you're still going to have to pay the, you know, and maintain each child subseries that you have. Otherwise, it's just going to completely fall apart because you're not paying the taxes you're supposed to pay on it. So you're not really saving anything. And so do I use them? Yes, very limited. I would much rather just create things with, you know, supporting case law and saying, keep it simple, stupid, right? Kiss principle, LLC in the state the asset is in, have that disregarded and owned by the limited partnership. Stuff that's been around for decades with actual case law on it and that we can actually go in and argue in court because this stuff's been around for like almost 30 years. And then how we combine them and use them, we actually have cases that actually stand up in court. So that's what I look at is what's effective when it actually is time to utilize them in court and they actually have to hold up you know, to the weight that's being pressured on. So before we get into asset protection trust, one more question on this is... Again, talking to other attorneys, we get a lot of different opinions, so it's hard to know which way to go. But, you know, we've been told that if you own syndications, you can own them in your own name because you're not going to get any liability from the syndication. But then someone else said, well, you will get liability, your personal liability, they can come and attach those. So you need those each in LLCs. So my question to you is, how would you own a syndication? I would own a passive syndication in the management company. You want to separate out. It depends on where your profile is. If the only thing that you have is like one syndication, then you may not need a management company. You may just need an LLC. Then put them in an LLC. That's fine. Most of my clients come in with lots and lots of assets. So I'm going to separate out risky assets and put risky assets in the LLCs to create a separation there. And then I'm going to clean it up by using that management company. You want to put all those passive, non-risky assets like passive syndication shares or your personal brokerage stock account directly into the management company because it's passive. So from that asset itself, it's clean. They're correct on saying you can get risk from your own personal life. That's why you want to protect your shares because, okay, I own a 5% interest on something and I hit somebody with my car. Well, I can lose that 5% interest that I bought on something from the negligence of my life. Okay. So you want to protect it. What you put it in will just depend on the whole makeup profile of you. You know, if you're just starting out, yeah, no LC. If you have multiple assets, we're scaling you up to clean up your system as well. It's going to go into a management company. If you already have them in existing LLCs, then we would just connect that LLC to the management company. Okay. Let's move on to the asset protection trust. And this is interesting because I think you're going to talk about a bridge trust 
which for me personally, I've always kind of been, it just seems so complicated, right? And I like to do simple. So when structuring my entire, I don't want to get sued and lose all my money either. So there has to be a compromise here. But can you talk about asset protection trust and then say, talk a little bit about who it's for? Yeah, absolutely. And they're actually really simple. That's the funny thing about it. And I want to break them down and feel free to jump in whenever you want to ask questions. But I think if we do it through a historical context and I break down what is a trust, what's the difference between offshore, onshore, so we understand those principles, then we can talk about how we marry them together. Does that sound good? Yeah, that's great. All right. Awesome. So the asset protection trust really is that, like I mentioned, that final layer is the bad weather is that outer shell, you know, waterproof layer. It's the heart and soul of an asset protection system. And so trusts have been the longest lasting entities of all entities for holding assets. And when it's done right, they're very strong. And then they can be sculpted to fit how you need them. And then they can morph as you need them without dealing with funding issues that you generally get with LLCs and other business entities when we try to argue to pierce the veils. And so I love trust. And then having a trust at that very top of your planning, it's just very powerful. And then this is really where you know creating an asset protection trust and really more importantly, picking the proper jurisdiction comes into play. And think of it like Baskin Robbins, okay? Trust come in lots of different flavors and types. The standard 101 trust that everybody's familiar with from the 60s is the family revocable living trust, like your family estate plan. So trust don't die. So when you do and you actually funded your trust by transferring ownership and title to it, you don't have to go through the courts and probate. And that changed the landscape of estate planning. Then you have also, you know, land trusts for real estate that you hold land and you connect them to LLCs. But land trusts don't have any protection in and of themselves. They're only as strong as the LLC that you connect them to. And so it's just a privacy mechanism, not a protection mechanism. From there, you have higher levels of trust that are called asset protection trusts. And I really want to spend time on this and break down the three types, like I mentioned. And then after this, I think you and your listeners will know more than 99% of attorneys out there on trust. And so these really came into play in the early 1980s, I think specifically 1984. And an asset protection trust is what's called a self-settled spendthrift trust. And so all self-settled means is that you are creating it for yourself. So they are for you, by you, as your own beneficiary, and they have very strong and important spendthrift provisions in them. So this lets you protect your assets while you're actually living from creditors not having to relinquish control of your assets. The difference is that they allow you to protect the assets, not for just you know your grandkids, but for yourself, which you weren't allowed to do in the past. And so you're probably, like I said, somewhat familiar with one type of self-settled trust, the revocable living trust. Many of you have them, your family members have them, grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles. They're the same in that they're self-settled, meaning created for you and by you. The difference is that with an asset protection version of a trust, it includes that critical provision called spendthrift provisions. And what spendthrift provisions are is they are provisions that allow you to protect your assets from creditors. So they're the actual teeth behind it. And then for those to work, the trust has to be not revocable, meaning like it can be ordered to be changed from a judge, but irrevocable. And that's really a big distinction between there. So revocable versus irrevocability. And so they're just very different types of trust, just like chocolate and vanilla. They're both ice cream, but they're different types and flavors of ice cream. And then this is where I think it's really important to break down the fundamental difference between the international and domestic side so that you understand the principles, how these things even work. Does that sound good? Yeah. Yeah. So again, like I mentioned, you have really, it's like three options. You can establish them domestically here in the US, or you can go offshore in another country like the famous Cook Islands, or you can create a hybrid and try to marry the two together. And so from the historical context, the offshore came first in 1984 when the Cook Islands created an asset protection trust. I personally like and choose the Cook Islands if and when it's applicable just because it offers the best home court advantage. But to be honest, like generally, I would say like 1% of my clients, we go purely foreign. You know, and you'll figure out why in a minute. But why it's the best is because asset protection is what these trusts and the Cook Island statutes, this is what they're specifically drafted for. And the power is they have what's called statutory non-recognition, any other jurisdiction court orders in the world, like including the United States. 
What this means is that if you have a judgment against you in the United States and they took it down to the Cook Islands, your U.S. judgment is worthless. It literally has no value whatsoever. Statutorily, the Cook Islands are prohibited from recognizing it, and they have a lot of statutory hurdles that you have to jump through. You know, if somebody wants to sue you or your trust, you know, your Cook Islands trust, they'd have to start the case all over from scratch within a one-year statute of limitations. The person suing you, they're going to have to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the murder standard, the highest legal standard in the world, the 99% sure standard, not the 51% preponderance of the evidence. Like, I'm not sure what happened. Sure, let's give it to them. So the 99% standard, okay? You can't get a contingency fee attorney to represent you because they're not allowed down there. It's unethical in the Cook Islands, just like it used to be unethical here in the United States, but that got changed in the 1960s. The claim, meaning the lawsuit, is not amendable. And so what this means is like once you get sued, that's it. You can't go and change it or amend it after the discovery of litigation takes place and then decide to sue you for something completely different later on like we do here in the U.S. The person suing you is going to have to front the entire court cost plus flying the judge from New Zealand, and they can't take their U.S. attorneys with them. And if you lose, you pay. And this is one of the single worst things that we don't have here in the United States, that the loser does not need to pay the legal fees and costs for the winner. So if you get sued by somebody for a completely bogus reason, I mean, just a completely frivolous lawsuit, and you spend $200,000 defending yourself on legal fees, which is very low estimate, and then finally the court throws the lawsuit out, you're still going to be out $200,000. That person that sued you is not going to be getting the bill in the mail because in our legal system... The United States, you know, we don't want to discourage lawsuits. Our legal system is run by trial lawyers who don't want to discourage them. And so, you know, if you remember that four-part test that I mentioned, effectiveness, cost control, and compliance, number one, I mean, effectiveness, right? Like five out of five stars. It's the strongest trust in the world. But what about the drawbacks? Control, cost, and compliance. You know, on these, it's all going to fall short. The costs are going to be high. Generally, on average, you're talking about $45,000 to set them up. And I've seen them go up to like seventy-five dollars to $100,000, depending on the client's issues. And if you're purely foreign, you now have a lot of IRS reporting compliance and disclosures to file. So you've got your 3520s, 3520As, which are full balance sheet disclosures, and sometimes the entire trust agreement to the IRS. And those forms are not cheap for a CPA to do. And then you have a lot of FACTA account disclosures and compliance that you have to do. And then for these trusts to work, you have to be out of control of that trust. That's why those trusts work so well. So for most people, most of my clients, they're just not comfortable with all of that. So while you have the most literally effective trust in the world by far, it's not something that we're usually using because of the other three drawbacks, which then brings us to the other option, the domestic side of it. The domestic trust came into play 10 years later in Alaska of all places started. And then not to get outdone, you know, like Wyoming, Delaware, Nevada, they're like, hey, we're the states that are known for this. Like, we're going to start doing this as well. And so now you have about 19 or 20 states with some domestic asset protection statutes in play. And so the states are jumping on board, seeing that our legal system's a threat and that things, you know, need to get done to protect your assets. And so asset protection in the United States is very valid. And so asset protection as a concept is very important for you to understand it's valid. It's just how you do it is going to be really important. The issue with the purely domestic asset protection trust is that we live in the United States of America. We have a constitution and we have Article 4, Section 1, which is the full faith and credit clause. This clause states that, you know, every state must grant the full faith and credit to the judicial proceedings of every other state. So we're going to break this down real quick. What this means is that, for example, Nevada can pass an asset protection statute, which they have, but it can't ignore a California or Washington or Florida or any other court orders. So where the Cook Islands can just literally throw a California judgment in the trash, Nevada cannot do that. Nevada must respect it constitutionally and even litigate it. And the courts now are just simply ignoring the choice of law clause. Like California, in the case Kilker versus Steelman, literally came out and said, hey, Californians, we don't recognize asset protection trusts. We don't have asset protection trust statutes. So we're not going to recognize you running off to Nevada and creating a Nevada asset protection clause, you know, asset protection trust. So they no longer recognize them and they pierce into those trusts. And failure means breach and assets lost. And so that's just an unacceptable thing to have. That's where the bridge trust, which has been around for almost 30 years now, comes into play. What you're doing is creating a hybrid, just like hybrid cars. You're taking the best out of both and putting them together. And so, again, we're combining the two strong features of an offshore trust with the strength 
that you need from it, the statutory non-recognition, with the ease and lack of maintenance of a domestic asset trust. So it's a fully registered offshore trust from day one. So it is a Cook Islands offshore trust with an offshore trustee on standby from the day we create it, just in case you need them. But we build the bridge back through the IRS for IRS purposes so that the IRS classifies that trust as a domestic trust. And we do this by complying with USC section 7701. It's called the court test and control test. So think of it like having two passports. You can have your Swiss passport and you can have your US passport. And as long as you have your US passport, the US will always consider you a US resident. And so because of that bridge that we build through the IRS, as long as we have our compliance in place by maintaining you as the main trustee, we stay classified domestically. And what this means is that the trust is now gonna be cheaper to create is going to be more flexible. You have none of all of those annoying IRS compliance and really no IRS tax filings and disclosures at all because the trust is actually classified as a domestic U.S. grantor's trust. So it's very easy to use. But you now get that power of the offshore if and when you need it. It's now in your back pocket. It's in your toolbox like a contractor who needs his tools to build your house. He's not going to use all the tools at the same time, but when he needs them, he has them. And then during a state of duress like a doomsday lawsuit, your attorney would declare a state of duress. We would break compliance with the IRS classification by removing you as the main trustee. So we're not complying anymore with that code section, the control test and the court test. And at that point, your trust is now what it actually is, a purely foreign trust. When the lawsuit goes away and settles, we reinstill you back as the trustee and we're back in compliance being domesticated. And so now you've married the two together and you have a very functional flowing asset protection plan. That's a lot. <laughs> That's great. So I guess a couple questions here. We're running towards the end. So how do I know which approach is best? And, and like I said, I've talked to several different attorneys and each one has a different idea of the approach. And, you know, I'm a passive investor. I also own some other assets. How do I find the right attorney, the right advisor to help me when each person I go to, you know, they're all very competent and smart, but they each have a different strategy or plan. They all end up with a bridge trust, but they have different ways of getting there. How do I reconcile that? That's a good question. One, I'd ask to show me the case law. You know, like a lot of attorneys like talk stuff, but then there's not much case law supporting it or ask good questions, you know, on what you're doing and then fall back on that acronym I told you about effectiveness, cost, control, and compliance. And so as you start talking to attorneys, realize with your own self, remember, there's a million ways to skin a cat, how strong you need your plan to be. Not everybody's going to need a really strong plan. You know, like we focus on very strong plans because of just like the client profile that we have. So you need to look at holistically, where's all your risk and liability coming from? Are you high risk? Are you high profile? Are you high net worth? And then start looking at the structures from there and then realize how effective is it going to be? Because at the end of the day, realize I don't care what happens in your life while everything's peaceful and calm. Honestly, that's not what these are for. What these are for is we're in court. There's a cutthroat attorney who wants to gut you and look at every word and you know every dot and every comma of your agreements that you have because they're going to try to take you for every penny that you have. That plan you set up needs to uphold that. And so the only way legally for you to preserve your money at the end of the day, if you're here in the US, is to eventually have an exit strategy offshore. The problem of going purely offshore right away is not needed for most people. 99% of people just don't need it. For the high risk, high profile, you know, high net worth people, we want to build in that offshore exit strategy, but just not pay to maintain it until we need it. So that's where the hybrid comes in. For other people, they may not be ready for an asset protection trust. So they're at the LLC level and the management company level. So you need to look at where you fall on the sliding scale currently, then what's my two-year, five-year, 10-year investment plan? And then realize you may be adding up and stacking up more risk as you go. So you just need to know where you're going. So all these plans, these different, it can grow with you as your wealth grows, right? And I think one of the big hurdles, at least for me, is, you know, I've set up my LLCs. I have my family trust, you know, and I feel like I had every, and then I keep growing. And then it feels like, okay, now I have to go start all over and redo everything. And it's just such a heavy lift. So how do you help people get around the friction and the problem that 
this is a big thing to make changes on, right? You want to set it up. It's really not that big, to be quite honest. It may be just a headache because you don't want to take the time out of your life to do it, but just realize then don't invest and don't make money. I mean, honestly, sometimes I just I give people tough love. It's a good problem to have. Just like people that are, oh, I, like me, I hate paying taxes like quarterly. I hate all these taxes. And literally my CPA is like, Brian, that's a good problem to have. It means you're making money. You know, and it's like, oh, you're right. You know, stop complaining about it. It's just people don't like distracting their mind from the stuff they want to get done until it's too late. That's the problem. People wait till it's too late. So adjust your mindset and realize if I'm going to hustle and I'm going to grind and I want to make more money, then you always need to be on top of your money and you're protecting it. And you need to be talking to your CPA and you need to be talking to your attorneys and making sure, you know, I'm mitigating my taxes always. And I need to make sure like what I buy is protected for when something does go belly up. I need it in place beforehand. You can't call me afterwards and be like, hey, man, I just got sued. What can you do for me? I'm going to exempt the lawsuit. There's nothing I can do for you now. That's great. This has been fantastic. There's a lot to go through here. You know, this is probably one where I'll, I'll need to listen to it a couple of times. So the last question I always ask, and I don't know if you're a podcast listener or not, but if you are, what's a great podcast you listen to? If it's real estate related, that's great. If not, that's fine, too. I'll give you two. You know, like I used to listen to a lot on bigger pockets just because like I like money and investing. And there's a lot. I listen more for like the tax stuff, to be honest, not like how to invest money. I just like to learn about, you know, t- like I'm the weird guy that likes taxes because you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to pay them. You know, <laughs> so that's always a great one. I listened to a lot in the past and then I, I listen to a lot of Tony Robbins stuff. You know, like I'm always working on myself, you know, my mindset. And I think if you can manage the toxic dysfunction in your life, you know, it's not always about making money because if your mind's a mess, you're going to lose all of your money. So if you can make your, you know, manage the toxic dysfunction in your life, find something that helps you like personally grow and listen to it every day, you know, a little bit of work on yourself a day and you'll make yourself better, your family life better, you know, your family environment, your kids. And then it'll be amazing how fast your money grows once you are whole. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, so how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to talk about putting together a plan or, or just anything at all? Yeah, absolutely. You can j- jump on my website, www.btblegal.com. I have it set up more as an educational resource, and I put a lot of case law on there because I just want people to be educated. And I break, we break down the cases. I have a lot of educational videos, a huge frequently asked questions section and blog articles. I want you to go and do the research before you start shopping around so you can ask educated questions and not be sold a bag of goods. And then the next thing, you can just email me, Brian, B-R-I-A-N at btblegal.com. And I do a free one-hour consultation, like whether we work well together or not, or like you're the right client profile. I just would rather you have a good consultation and then take it from there. Awesome. Well, that's great. We really appreciate you being on the show. This has been very informative and we'll definitely dig into this and figure out next steps for me personally, because this is something that's been on my to-do list for a couple of years and I need to move it into the to-done list. So thank you very much for being on the show. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. This episode is brought to you by MAG Capital Partners, a leading investment firm specializing in single tenant industrial real estate with triple net leases. MAG invests in properties with established tenants in manufacturing, cold storage, and distribution. These income investments are designed for strong, tax-advantaged cash flow from day one and have historically generated above-market returns. With approximately $500 million of real estate acquisitions, MAG Capital Partners has extensive experience and a history of profitable exits. To learn more about MAG Capital Partners, visit www.magcp.com. That was definitely an interesting conversation, and it's my second conversation with an asset protection attorney in the uh, in the last few months. And it's just interesting to me how they're both qualified, smart people, and they have drastically different ideas of the best way to go about asset protection. So that just shows you it's just like any of this when you have a CPA or a financial advisor or an attorney, they all learn things in different ways. And so they all end up with different structures for their, you know, the processes and how they do things. And so I think it it just accentuates the importance of finding somebody that you know, like, and trust, because I am sure the setups that both these attorneys that we've had on the podcast recently, I'm sure they are both fine ways to set it up, but both attorneys disagree. So you're not going to, as a lay person, I'm not going to know who's right and who's wrong. I just have to pick the one that I think will fit my needs the best. 
and trust that they will put me in a situation to be where I'm more protected than I am now and as well protected as I can be. Some of the other things that he said that you want a legal barrier between you and someone seeking your assets. And and that just makes sense to me, right? Someone's coming after your assets. You want that legal barrier. And he said LLCs sometimes aren't enough. So then you have to go up to a LP, limited partnership, and maybe even an asset protection trust. And the analogies, I love analogies. And when he's talking about layering his clothes, you know, where you need a base layer and then you need a warmth layer and then you need something to, to keep the weather out. That's the same thing. You start with an LLC and insurance. And as I said, you move up from there. And I like that this the plan can grow with you. And that's also, you know, when we were talking to the other year attorney, that was the same thing. You need a plan that you start out wherever you are that suits your needs now, but that's not going to suit your needs five years from now or 10 years from now. And so having an attorney who can understand that you're gonna, your wealth is going to grow and can protect you as it grows is very important. And, you know, they both said, get the assets out of your name. Don't have all of your assets in your name. And that's hard because most of my assets are out of my name, but there's still some that are in there. And it's just so burdensome to go through this process. And actually, you know, uh, Brian was clear that it's not as burdensome as it sounds. You can get this done. It's not impossible. But what I need to do personally is get it off my to-do list. It's been there since the last time I went to an attorney, which was a few years ago. And I just keep putting it off, putting it off because it's a lot to tackle. But man, I'm going to regret it if I don't have that barrier between me and someone seeking my assets. If something happens and I haven't gone through this process to make sure I'm adequately protected because things have changed. I'm in a lot more deals, syndications and and all that than I was before. So I think all of us need to do a checkup. And so, you know, I was concerned that maybe having two attorneys on within a couple months of each other was too much, but I think it's just a good reminder that, hey, we need to get out there. And whether it's Brian or or one of the others, we need to find someone who can help us put that barrier in place that we are protected. So all the work that we're doing to build our wealth is doesn't go away from one mistake or one bad decision or one lawsuit. So yeah, I'm definitely going to uh, contemplate getting that bower with Brian just to see what he says about my situation and uh, move on from there. So we'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.